Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Is the Syrian civil war over? Did Bashar al-Assad win it? And if he did, what does winning even mean for a country that's pretty much made entirely out of rubble? Most importantly... What's next for the dictator and the people who live within the sort of nation's borders? To help us understand what's going on, we've got Washington Post correspondent Liz Sly. She's covered the war since it began in 2011 and has made many trips to Syria. She's also a fantastic writer and multiple award winner. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What's the state of Syria's civil war now? The war is not over, but it's not raging either. People call it a frozen conflict, but that implies nothing's happening, which isn't quite true either. You still have front lines and fighting takes place along them, but at a very low level. You have a front line in the north, west in Idlib province, um, across which shelling takes place on a regular basis between rebels and the last remaining rebels and the Syrian army. And every now and then, Syrian and Russian regime warplanes go over the Idlib area and drop bombs on people and towns and various targets, sometimes military, sometimes not, in the area. You have a front line in the northeast between the Kurds and the Turks, across which fighting continually takes place, occasional shelling, and there's been a number of mutual drone strikes going on there as well. Well, I know I wouldn't say mutual drone. Turks have been assassinating Kurdish commanders on the other side, and the Kurds are sending bombs and and rockets and things over to the Turkish side of that. And then there's a sort of confused front line in the east where you have American troops who very occasionally, but in an increasing, to an increasing extent, getting attacked by Iranian-backed forces on the other side of the Euphrates. And there's also a simmering ISIS insurgency going on in that area, an ongoing one, the remnants of the ISIS caliphate that was never defeated. So that is the state of the war at the moment. Nothing major, but definitely not over. How do you rule over that kind of country, faced on all sides by that much conflict? How do you keep control? Assad doesn't rule over those, should we say, three areas or two areas, the northwest where the rebels control and the northeast and east where the Kurds and the Americans control. His area of the country is roughly maybe two thirds, but it's a little less than two thirds. He rules that area. 
pretty much with an iron fist. The rest of it is beyond his control. It's quite significant because he's lost significant borders and therefore significant trade routes. And that is something that obviously he, he says he will not let go. He will not rest. He will not stop fighting until he's got his territory back. But under the current circumstances, it's extremely hard to see how he would ever get that territory back because his army is small and tired and has not been able to do it in 10 years. And we can't see any significant shift or military injection of funds or ability suddenly enabled him to do so. And without a compromise and some sort of political settlement, the forces there are not going to give up. Who are the people left in Idlib that are fighting? Is this the the Free Syrian Army? It's the remnants of the Free Syrian Army. You've got the Free Syrian Army remnants who are now grouped in in an entity called the Syrian National Army, which is basically a Turkish proxy these days. Because the Turks also have what they call observers there. I'd like another little bit Syria, sorry, this is getting so complicated. Turks have observers there under a deal with Russia that they made a few years. But the, the, the Turks basically control the Syrian National Army, remnants of the FSA. And then you have HTS Hayat, which is the um, evolved form of Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate. It says it has nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. And they are the probably the dominant force. They are the dominant force in the region. In the, of Idlib. You touched on something I think is really interesting just a second ago when you apologized for this being so complicated. In your career, have you ever seen anything like this? It seems unique and it seems so indicative of war and conflict now. Things are messy and complicated and there are so many sides. What's your take on that? Well, the more a country is in conflict, the more complicated it does seem to become. It's um, a good question. And sometimes one can have little sort of academic arguments with one friends over was Lebanon more complicated during the civil war or indeed now. I went to Afghanistan when the Taliban fell in 2001 and I was like, whoa, this is complicated. I thought Lebanon was complicated, but what about Afghanistan? Iraq got pretty complicated. Syria is really complicated. I wouldn't put one or other of them in the front of that top four complicated countries. I would add Pakistan to being really complicated, but it's a different story. Do you think it's just then my dumb uh, American brain being raised on World War II stories that I want to reduce these conflicts down to to easy sides? I kind of balk when they're not. Maybe that's more of a statement than a question, actually. I think it's astonishing how much simpler World War II seems than Syria is now. Yes. No, it's... And people do want to reduce conflicts to their simplest forms. And the thing is, it's, it becomes really hard to write any story about Syria because you always forget some element. What I didn't, I forgot in my rundown of the state of the war, I forgot Israel. Um, Israel periodically bombs Syria in different places. Israel is fighting Iran in Syria. There's another layer to it. No matter what story you write, you will have forgotten to mention. So no matter what peace plan you come up with, there will be some little twist or some little agenda or interests that you haven't satisfied so that plan won't work because it won't suit those people. And so it spins round and round and round and nobody ever comes up with a viable solution. I'm also not seeing many people try. To just boil down to one particular area, I'm interested in how the Americans are now involved. Are we talking about Iranian proxies actually firing live rounds and the U.S. soldiers fighting back? Or what form is it taking and how serious is it? I mean, are a lot of people dying? No, we haven't had any deaths as a result of this yet. What 
is happening is fairly under an unreported rockets being fired at a large American base east of the Euphrates River. Not that often, maybe every couple of months or something, every few weeks. I'm not sure. I'm not following everyone and they don't get all reported. There was a very interesting attack a few weeks back against a small American outpost, which is very complicated. So it's stuck on the Jordanian-Iraqi border called El Tanf. And it's a sort of post that was created when the Americans started supporting the FSA against ISIS, but then the FSA kind of crumbled. That effort was given up. They switched to the Kurds, but ended up with this little outpost surrounded by regime territory and now Iranian militia territory and regime territory on the Jordanian-Iraqi border. And they're still there. And this base got attacked by drones, drones a few weeks, and it caused quite a substantial amount of damage. And it appears the Americans had some kind of warning in advance and were able to clear people out of places that they might have got injured in. Um, Now, we don't know if that was a warning shot, a message, the launch of a campaign, the limits of a maximum capacity that they can't really do it again because that was the most they're capable of or the first step in an escalation. But it can't be ruled out that America could get caught up in fighting with Iran in Syria. If things at the nuclear negotiations go badly, if Iran decides to escalate elsewhere in the region, yes, it just never stops being getting getting more and more complicated because you also have to put the Iran nuclear negotiations into this. And that's a whole separate level of conversation. And the reason why the base at Al Tanf was attacked is because a statement from what appears to be a group of pro-Iranian militias in Syria said they were retaliating for an Israeli airstrike elsewhere in the country that had killed a bunch of pro-Iranian militias and would have been targeting some sort of military facility that Iran was acquiring in um, Syria. And so it looked like the Iranians were trying to drive the Americans into the Israeli conflict that they had. Fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about Assad and what his Syria looks like right now? Yes, his Syria is largely at peace. There are occasional attacks and little kind of um, hit and runs on, on checkpoints and very occasionally some sort of bombing. But mostly it's at peace. It's also incredibly poor to a level that Syrians had not anticipated or experienced in decades, maybe a century. The currency has, uh, has lost pretty much 100% of its value. It can't have done that, obviously, but it's something like 97.8%. And buying power has been eroded to practically nothing. There is a severe risk of famine. Um, Syria is an Eastern Mediterranean country. It's near Europe. It's one of like nine countries in the world this year that the World Food Programme has coloured in red on its severe famine warning um, map, along with mostly countries in Africa and Yemen, of course. So this is a huge collapse for Syria and for Syrians. Um, it's a country that has its that grows its own food, and that probably will save it because it does grow some some of its a lot of its own food. But there is a risk of hunger. People don't have work. Um, there is no investment, and there is no reconstruction. So it's absolutely stuck absolutely stuck in the very immediate aftermath of war. Is there any sense that people are tired of Assad, the ones in his immediate area, I mean, or is it just 10 years of war has worn everybody down? I think it's both. I did a story a few years ago, you could definitely pick up on social media, lots of rumblings of discontent among Assad loyalists, that they stood by Assad all these years and sacrificed the Alo- his minority Alawite community, in particular, 
the most. The reports are that maybe 100,000 of the Alawites died fighting for Assad and young men, they, they gave the lives of the, their young men for him. And there is now no reward. Their lives are not getting back to normal. There isn't investment. There isn't reconstruction. There aren't new jobs. There's a lot of frustration, but people also feel they don't have any alternative. And the draconian nature of the regime deters any significant level of expressed opposition. Does the memory of his father play a part at all? Well, that's an interesting question, too. The memory of his father has tended to grow fonder among, oh, I think it was always probably quite fond, but fonder among Assad supporters because there, there is a grumbling among many Assad supporters. Son is not the father. On the other hand, there is plenty of Assad family cult worship going on. And one element you, one element you do see with supporters of the regime is a sort of sense, and you had this at the very beginning, even with the opposition and the people who joined the protests, that this isn't Assad's fault. Assad is above all of this. Assad is sort of <clears throat> this semi-godlike figure. If only he knew there was so much corruption, because corruption is the biggest mess in the economy. I mean, the hugest part of the, the economy being just in such a mess is that there's just so much corruption going on. People are stealing at every level. If only Assad knew that, he would stop it. And it's not his fault, but all the people under him and all the people close to him are evil. The question about the corruption, what is going on now and what is the Assad family's role in it? Well, that's, an, uh, that's sort of the million or billion or whatever dollar question, because no, there is no evidence of direct Assad family corruption, or at least um, Bashar al-Assad and his wife. Nobody's ever accused them of squirreling away money. They've been never found with any bank accounts in places. Everybody who sort of studies the regime and looks at this and people who have defected or kind of put distance with the regime do believe that something's going on, but there's not a lot of evidence. But what does happen is that people around him are encouraged to get the plum contracts, the um, lucrative contracts on their own behalf and indirectly on his behalf so that he can control the economy and see where all the money's going and perhaps have a hand in it too. The big and notable exception to the Assad family not having evidence of corruption, is Rami Maklouf, who is the cousin of Assad. He is from a very venerable Alawite clan that his father, Haf- Bashar's father, Hafez, married the aunt of Rami Maklouf. And so they are almost blood relatives. And Rami Maklouf has been found to be very corrupt, and it's known, and it's overt. His sons live in Dubai and drive around in flashy cars, and put their cars on Instagram. They have private jets and boast about them. And again, Instagram Instagram their private jets. The Assad children are barely seen in public when they are there looking very well behaved, standing next to their parents, occasionally making a very political or you know, small walkabout kind of, kind of appearance. Rami Maklouf has been found with bank accounts here and bank accounts there over the ages. It's been He's been reported to have 10 billion of assets, 16 billion of assets. How much of that is left now, we don't know. But when the protests began in 2011, the very first protests were against Rami Maklouf, not against Bashar. And it shifted to Bashar after Bashar implemented a severe crackdown against these. Now, Bashar has now turned against his cousin, removed his ownership of 
Intel, which was the big mobile phone company that you controlled. Mobile phones are almost the only thing that makes money in Syria because everybody has to make own a mobile phone. It's a cash cow. There are no other cash cows practically. Rami McClough appears to be under some sort of house arrest, but not but free to move around in his villa outside Damascus. And every now and then he makes videos complaining about how corrupt everybody else is. And everybody accuses him of being corrupt. So the saga is ongoing, but he's been stripped of power. And of course, that's probably reasonably popular among most people living in regime-held Syria, because corruption has always been the biggest issue and the original course of the uprising. Uh, to paint a picture for the audience, Ali, one of Rami's sons, was spotted in Beverly Hills in October. Somebody filmed him because they noticed a, a gentleman next to him in a Ferrari 488 Spider, which is a $300,000 car. And he was kind of ambushed on the street and like, hey, I love your car. You know, how did you make the money to get this? And he's like, oh, from an internship, he said. And of course, the internet quickly figured out who this guy was and realized his connection to the Assad regime. But that is the kind of... When we talk about corruption and how much money that family is pulling down and how ostentatious it has been with it, driving $300,000 cars around in Beverly Hills and appearing on Instagram videos is what we're talking about. Right. Um, and one of the contrasts um, between Rami and Bashar, for example, when I say there's no evidence of direct or overt corruption, Bashar has never been seen driving a flashy car. It's never been any flashiness associated with him. The rumor, the myth, I believe it's a myth, but it might have been true once, is that he lives in a pretty shabby apartment building in central Damascus with the people, like the people. Uh, nobody believes he really lives there anymore because of security, and he's probably hiding where he lives. But th that's certainly the myth that's around Assad. He doesn't have a presidential palace or anything? Well, there is a giant presidential palace that his father built, but he didn't build it. But he's made a point of saying he doesn't live there and goes to work. And there's a famous video of him that came out on the morning um, after the first airstrikes on Syria that Trump ordered, which I'm, I've lost track of time. I think it was 2018. And he's walking into the this giant atrium of the Garci atrium of the Marble Presidential Palace, holding his suitcase, like reporting for work at nine o'clock in the morning on the morning after his country was bombed. And... But a subliminal, a subliminal message in this is that Bashar also doesn't live in this palace. He's He goes to work there. It's a government building. I think it's quite unlikely he is actually living there simply because it sticks out like a sore thumb on the top of a hill. And it's a massive target for anyone. But who knows? He could have underground bunkers. I have no idea where he's living. Can we talk about sanctions against the regime? Because it's we're talking about money and around money. How isolated is Syria at this point? Syria is, I would say, as countries and isolation go, it's pretty isolated. It has the support of Russia, it has China, it has the undying support of Iran. It has a few outreaches from some Arab countries. And, you know, there are countries that have never, ever um, cut ties with Syria and do business and are fine with it. The BRICS, the, um, the Syrians love the BRICS. They talk about BRICS a lot, which is Brazil. India, what's the next one? South Africa. South Africa is in there anyway. Is it Brazil, India, China, South Africa? The South Africans have maintained their embassy there. They do, they do business. Brazil has always maintained relations. But nobody puts money in because it's a, it's a loss-making enterprise. It's not a viable proposition. 
And so I guess politically, it's not that isolated, but um, economically, it's very isolated. The Russians don't want to put money in because they've spent billions propping up the regime with military assistance, and that's quite enough for them. The Iranians don't have any money. The Gulf countries are very, very iffy because of sanctions and their relationship with the US to go all out with Syria and money. But also you have Chinese, nothing to stop the Chinese going and doing some investing there, but it's not a viable investment and that's going to stop the Gulf countries too. So I believe the biggest reason why Syria isn't getting new investment is because it's not viable and the money will get stolen and there isn't an investment proposition. And what do you invest in? That sanctions are a bit of a sort of unnecessary popping on that, if you like. The regime is able to blame the sanctions for the failure to deliver living standard improvements and to deliver reconstruction and get off the hook for being unable to deliver the kind of good governments and investment environment that might actually attract some money. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We will be right back after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, Angry Planet listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We're back from break and back on to talk about Assad. So we end up with a regime just trying to get by having the telephone company as one source of revenue. Another source of revenue that has been mentioned or reports of is Captagon and amphetamine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes, that's a fascinating subject. It's not one I'm an expert on. There was a very good story in the New York Times over the weekend that went into the detail on this. But yes, everybody's sort of noticing now that as Syria steps out of war, it's becoming what they call a narco-state and there's a very substantial Captagon industry growing up, especially along the coast and in, in, in areas controlled by Assad, that appears to be directly under the control of Maha al-Assad, who is um, Bashar's brother, and the third wheel, if you like, in the triumvirate of power that is Bashar, Asma, and Maha. And that appears to be bringing in some illicit income for the regime. And what happens to it, of course, we don't know. Does it all go to, to Maha? You would have to do a lot of accounting to figure it out. There was a report last year that 2020 seizures of Katchgan amounted to 3.5 billion, something like that. That is more than the country's annual budget. It's three times more than the country's annual export. So it is possibly the biggest industry in Syria. And it's all illegal. And it's all being run by Assad cronies, Assad loyalists and Assad's brother. Where's that money going? How much of that is profit? How much of it is like costs along the way? We don't know. Where's the amphetamine going? The amphetamine is mostly going to the Gulf. It appears to be popular in the Gulf. 
Some people on Capitol Hill and some other people are trying to get more attention for the drug angle to the Assad regime, seeing as human rights is really sort of fizzled away. Nobody cares about human rights anymore. And terrorism's kind of gone away. So there's no real reason to care about Syria anymore. So some people are saying, hey, it's becoming a drug state. We should care. Why should the West care about this? Well, there's a concern that this drug will start reaching Europe. But at the same time, Europe has its own um, thriving and active and successful drug markets. And I, it's my understanding that Captagon is way down the quality league of drugs. So it's not whether it takes hold in Europe or spreads across Europe, I don't know. But there have certainly been shipments caught in Italy and Greece. That doesn't necessarily mean they were going to Europe, because that could have been the most convenient Eastern Mediterranean transshipment point for them. What's the state of the Islamic State problem at the moment? It's a very, very interesting question, um, because the state of the Islamic State problem has been kind of the same for almost the past three years now, which is they... They are coming back, they're not coming back, they're coming back, they're not coming back, they're not defeated, they're not coming back. They do steady, steady TikToks of attacks. They are infiltrated in that eastern area, which they can control completely. Of course, when that area was taken back, huge numbers of people who were their fighters and everything got caught and are still in these kind of dismal prisons and everything. But the huge numbers of people who were loyal and were did subscribe to their ideology just stayed on in the community. And I spent a fascinating 10 days, a week or 10 days in Raqqa in the end of 2019, where you could just feel their presence all around you, but they weren't actually there. And it was really hard to make a call on whether they could come back or not. You would talk to people. And if you got into depth with them, they would start talking about the Islamic State with such fondness and reverence that you began to feel you were in the presence of a true believer. Well, because things were stable, right? Things were stable. Little attacks, nothing major. Things were stable, little assassinations. It was kind of sinister, but I just couldn't make a call on whether they secretly controlled the whole place from under the, from behind the curtain, as they would say, or were biding their time to make a pounce one day or struggling to stay alive, but they certainly still have support. Sorry, you said that you could feel them more, more than anything. And I'm just wondering, was there like, was there like graffiti or propaganda around, or was it mostly just the conversations with people? Graffiti would go up overnight. And like what kind and of? The, the slogan was in, in um, Iraq and Syria when they conquered it was remaining and expanding. And they would put this everywhere. Obviously, they are not expanding now, but the word remaining would go up overnight. That's kind of quite chilling. We're still here. And and yes, in the people who, when you got deep into talking to them, they would just start talking about how great life was under the Islamic State. Not for reasons of stability, and actually the economy is not doing too badly in America. It's been so stable. There's been a big influx, including of people from regime areas who want to go and live there and take advantage of the economic opportunities. People would just talk about how, oh, you know, all these laws and being Islamic was so good and everything. But what, one thing that has happened recently, and this is relevant to Syria, but I'm not sure what big it's just happening now, is there's been a lot of attacks in Iraq, especially in the Kurdish areas. And it seems the Islamic State has begun infiltrating people. It was hiding sort of sleeping cells from and fighters, um, undercover fighters from Syria into Iraq, hundreds in recent weeks, apparently. So watch that space as well. This goes into my next question, which was, how are the Kurds doing? 
Kurds in Syria are doing fine. I haven't been there since the end of 2019. I had all these plans to go back because it was so interesting. And COVID has interrupted that. And since then, I haven't been able to get away for other reasons. But the Kurds have done a much better job than I originally anticipated in governing this vast area, mostly desert, but overwhelmingly majority Arab. It's a misconception that this is a Kurdish area. There is a tiny handful of majority Kurd villages one small corner of territory that is overwhelmingly Kurdish. And the rest of this vast area they govern is overwhelmingly Arab. And they've managed to keep control of it despite a long history of Arab-Kurdish tensions and general neighborly dislike of each other and um, have probably, are probably delivering the best governance in Syria. Is Turkey going to let that go on? Well, that's one of the huge questions. Turkey has to let it go on because America is there. How long is America going to stay? Look what happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, look what happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, if I were if I were Kurdish, I would absolutely be watching what happened in Afghanistan, right? Well, I think the Kurds were watching very closely. Also, there's been some expressions of doubling down and affirmation of the determination to stay in northeast Syria by the Americans lately. That makes me think that actually, if you you've got if you've got troop, American troops that you want to stay right now, Afghanistan might have been the best thing that could have happened to you. Because I don't think the Biden administration wants another Afghanistan uh, to occur and pictures of Kurds clinging onto American helicopters or anything like that. I don't think it can afford those images to happen anywhere else. And if the Americans leave, somebody will go in and slaughter the Kurds, that's for sure. And you can't rule out the regime doing it with the Turks. Can I zoom out, since we're talking about the Biden administration, can I zoom out and ask a question? This is for everybody that's on the call, bigger than just what we're talking about immediately. It seems like between... The situation in Syria, the, the ongoing nuclear talks with Iran, China, the tensions between China and Taiwan, Ukraine and Russia, it really feels like there is a military test coming for this administration sometime in the near future, right? Does anyone have that sense? Does anyone else worry about that? That's something that's been keeping me up lately. Well, I have that feeling too, but it could just be that there's so many things bubbling at the same time that any one of them could take off. I study these scenarios and look at the scenarios. And in each scenario, the cleverest people seem to come out with the point of view that it's not going to end up in a war. I think probably the most dangerous one of those is China-Taiwan. And I don't know enough about that. But I lived in China in the 90s. I stay in touch with people who've remained engaged and living in China since then. They, The people I know who know most about China and have spent much, much longer, more recently than me, all are kind of convinced that China will make a military play for Taiwan one day. I think the Russians in Ukraine might be trying to get things out of the West, that putting the troops on the border, they believe will give them um, the leverage to get. And the Iran situation is so complicated that when you go round and round in the, in the circles about it, you sort of end up with no war, I think. Yeah, and we can get back to Syria. I'm sorry. It was just it's something that's been on no, my it's mind. Such a good question. It's just something that's been on my mind as we as we approach the holidays and it really feels like we've got so many so <laughs> many flashpoints. Yeah, just you know, I'd like to throw that out there. I'd like to add that layer of tension to everything. Um Yes, if sorry. you're a journalist, you have to sometimes you have to wonder if you're going to get a Christmas. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We all especially after the last two years, we all need it desperately. <laughs> sorry, Jason, go ahead. I wanted to ask you about human rights in Syria. I don't think people necessarily know just how bad the Assad regime is. There are a lot of secret sites. And are people still disappearing? 
That's a good question. I haven't looked into it recently, but for sure the answer is yes, because uh, they've never stopped disappearing, not before the uprising, not since it. People would go to prison. There's no, people are taken away. People disappear. We know of people who, this is a, this is a kind of issue right now, is refugees being sent back by countries who say it's safe, and there's a big issue in Denmark around this, and then people disappear. If there's anything on you, you will get taken. And people are, but not in the huge tens of thousands that were being rounded up a decade ago, many of whom, the majority of whom have probably not come out again. Why is that? not something that people are more concerned about. I mean, you're talking about, uh, you just said that people are not coming back out of these prisons. I assume that means they're being executed? There are secret executions. There are summary trials. If you oppose the government, you're accused of terrorism. And this gives them the right under their laws to in a prison and have a trial that nobody attends and execute you late five minutes after you've been found guilty after a five-minute hearing. And so... Tens of thousands have probably been executed under these laws. I mean, the human rights groups, roughly, and this figure has been pretty constant for the last two, three years, and I don't think it's changed significantly. We're talking low numbers now, but 100,000 plus have disappeared into Assad's prisons in the past decade. And of those, 85,000 of those have not been accounted for in one way or another. And people get tortured to death. The torture is unbelievable. I mean, the horrible things they do. And then if you get taken to hospital because you've been tortured, you get tortured again in the hospitals. It's shocking. It's, it, it's disturbing. It's the stuff of nightmares. And I know people who've been to prison for one or two days and not had more than a slap around, but just the hearing the screams of the other people has destroyed their mentalities for life. What what happens at the hospital that constitutes torture? Is it literally tortured again at the hospital? Is it another location? Yes, they smash their bone. There's a trial going on in Germany right now. They they um, smash their bones that are broken again. They chain them. They beat them. They inject them with poisons. What's the point? I mean, is it just a matter of terrorizing everybody else into line? Well, it's worked, isn't it? He's still there. 40 years. No, 50 years. 50 years of Assad family rule. A massive uprising. Huge numbers of population took to the streets, got arms, fought the government. They're still there. And that's the point of the torture as well? I mean, to uh, it just seems like they've oh, got Definitely. Off. Absolute fear of going into one of these prisons keeps people in line to a large degree, which is why you have to absolutely just be it's just mind-blowing how brave people were when they went out on the streets to oppose this. You sort of wonder also about where they get such a nice large group of torturers, but I guess that's uh, never been a problem in any country, finding people willing to do this kind of stuff. I mean, it happens in all the Middle East countries. And, um, yes, estimating the size of the torture force would be an interesting exercise. I don't think anybody's actually done that. But there are groups in Europe, around the world, mostly in Europe, investigating the identities of these specific torturers. And there are two guys who've been on trial in Germany now. And some of these people are showing up in Europe and then being recognized by their victims. And that's what happened to these two guys in Germany. One of them's been convicted. And there's another guy who's still awaiting um, sentence or verdict. I can't remember which. And he was much more involved than the first guy. So we'll see what sentence he gets. And, And I'm not sure he's been convicted either. So, But we are waiting for the outcome of that trial. And it's very interesting. What keeps this regime afloat aside from torture? Uh, Well, I would say 
fear, Russia and Iran, probably in that order. No, fear, Iran and Russia, whether which where, where, where they're in, I'm not sure, but fear would be number one. Iran, probably number two, but Iran and Russia are kind of equal there, yes. I mean, their support has been absolutely crucial. Without it, it, it couldn't have happened. But you also make it sound like Russia and Iran are at the end of their rope with Syria, or is that inaccurate? No, they're not no? at the okay. end of any rope. Russia is as invested as ever, but it's made it clear it's, it doesn't have the capacity, it doesn't have billions of dollars. Nobody has the billions of dollars to save Syria. Nobody. Not the Gulf countries. I mean, they might in their sovereign wealth funds, but, you know, it's not helping to work. And, you know, the U.S. couldn't do it. It's something that the World Bank, the IMF, would have to do as part of a massive international effort to spend money on on projects that wouldn't be investment returns. I mean, private investors only put money into things that give them money. They could build an apartment block, but they'd have to sell the apartments, right? Nobody's got any money to buy apartments or not enough people to make that a, a viable way of rebuilding the housing stock, for example. But Iran has made it clear it has undying support for Syria. Syria is incredibly important for Iran's regional strategy. Without Syria, without Lebanon, Iran can't Israel and hold off an attack against its nuclear facilities. People have described Syria and um, Lebanon as like the tip of the spear of Iran's defenses. They've got this forward projection of defense. It's a deterrent. There are deterrents. And, and Iran needs Syria to supply Hezbollah, which is on the border with Syria. And also Iran is now on the border of Syria um, in Syria. But those routes are the routes that are providing arms and weapons to Hezbollah. And they're building facilities inside Syria, which would come into play if there is a showdown over the nuclear program or anybody does decide to take out the regime in Iran or attack their facilities or whatever. So Syria is existential for Iran and they're never going to let go. But they don't have money to put in like the $250 billion that the UN has sort of vaguely thrown out there would cost to reconstruct the country. So that's not going to happen. But yes, he has that undying support. On top of that, I would say you can also say that there is a genuine support of people because the Syria is really quite a secular society and the um, rebels Islamized pretty quickly. And there are a lot of middle class Syrians who don't like the regime, have a great deal of distaste for this torture and the behavior of it and would like to be back in the international community and all that kind of thing. But they don't want Islamism either. And so it's a big problem for um, the opposition. And it was a big problem for many sort of middle-class Syrians in deciding where to put their support. And a lot of them just decided to keep quiet and keep their hands off it. What's next for Syria? Does Assad hang on forever? That's another million-dollar question. I don't believe anything's forever. I don't believe regimes that are that taut and brittle and tightly controlling can last forever. But, you know, you look at North Korea and, and that's still going strong. Maybe they can. We've been through little phases of history where we think that dictatorship is dead and democracy is the future. And now we're going back into a, an, another swing the other way where dictatorship seems to be the future. I have no idea what's going to happen. But I do believe the economy is a huge, huge challenge for the survival of the country in its current form. Or I mean, I, I do feel things are very unsustainable at the moment. We don't know what will give. It could be a rescue package from the Gulf that props things up just enough to maybe stabilize the currency and make things survive. It, there could be a massive geopolitical shakeup along any of these fault lines that you mentioned earlier in the world or anywhere that suddenly ripples into Syria and creates a whole brand new war. Who knows? I 
covered, been covering Cyril more than 10 years, but closely for 10 years since the uprising. And I don't make any more predictions. Liz Sly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, uh, $9 a month, go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. We've got the occasional article. The big draw is two bonus episodes every month that you get for your $9, and you get commercial-free versions of the mainline episodes. Again, that's at angryplanetpod.com or at angryplanet.substack.com. Uh, we're going to finish out this year with with uh, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I'm going to talk about Fat Leonard, finally. We're finally doing a Fat Leonard episode. I'm very excited. Uh, if, if you're a constant listener, you've heard me talk about this story con- all the time. Um, finally got somebody who has talked to Fat Leonard and knows the whole story from their perspective. Very excited. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.